here for the first time, or perhaps you're here for the first time in a long time, we're excited that you're here to worship with us. Our normal habit is to go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Uh, so sometimes you go to a church or you come to a place where everything is done in small mini-series or topics. Um, we go verse by verse. It's called exposition. Uh, and one of the things that's essential for all of us to remember as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 13, is that this is God's word. That this is God speaking to us. And so we should hear his word and receive it as such, with all the authority that that assumes. Last week we looked at the gruesome assault of Tamar, we will make reference to it some more this morning, but most of the details will remain uh, in adult minds. This is God's Word. It speaks to us about who we are, about what we love, and about how far we have fallen. So today we're going to pick up chapter 13, beginning in verse 20. Please hear and receive this as the Word of God. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this assault to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal-Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to King David and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant." But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose, and tore his garments, and lay upon the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments also. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men the king's sons. For Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister, 
say more. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon alone, excuse me, Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's son came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to the text today, we see a scene of gruesome murder, of conniving. Lord, we see lust and weakness. We see hatred and anger and murder. We come reading more than a story. God, we pray that you would speak to us in this narrative, that you would show us all that you have for us in the redemption that Christ brings. Come and bring us the insight and understanding we lack. Come and speak so powerfully and authoritatively that we are transformed and restored, renewed day by day, only by the mercy you offer us in the work life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come be glorified in the time in front of us. We ask in his name. And all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. The Bible is filled with stories. That's not new thought for any of us, right? But often, the stories of the Bible... Oh! It helps if you turn your mic on. Thanks, guys. Sorry. These are truly human stories, but they're not holy stories. We've been told that Yahweh has promised David, as a consequence for his sin, that there will be trouble in David's house, that his dynasty will not be threatened in an eternal way, but it will be filled with sin. It will be filled with evil begetting evil. This is the nature of evil, that it begets more evil. So last week, as we looked in chapter 13, we saw the first episode of this dual narrative. In fact, if you were to study this chapter as pure literature with no faith at all, you could be mesmerized by the parallels, the comparisons, and the contrasts. It is truly a literary work of art, but all of that is meaningless if we do not begin to see ourselves in the story, not as characters who act, but as onlookers who understand that these evils are inside us as well. 
These stories can have grotesque elements. Just as Tamar's being assaulted by Amnon last week was one of the most vile chapters of the Bible. It's one of the most heart-wrenching evils you will see depicted throughout the many depictions found in Scripture. But we are also to understand, even at the beginning, that just as Amnon's assault of Tamar in the first episode of this chapter mirrors David's abuse of Bathsheba, evil begetting evil, Absalom's conniving murder of his half-brother will mirror also David's conniving to murder Uriah. Again, evil begetting evil. So today's story is going to be filled with lust, conniving, weakness, hatred. And you can embody and personalize each of those. It is Amnon who is captured and consumed by lust. It is Jonadab who is skillful in the art of conniving. It is David, throughout this chapter, time and time again, shows weakness instead of strength. Shows the abdication of his authority instead of the use of his authority. But hatred, hatred best belongs to Absalom. But make no mistake, you and I are lustful, we scheme, We fail in our weakness, and we do hate. We might not admit it or talk about it, but when the room is dark and our eyes are closed and our hearts are filled with anger, these things are not far from us. They flow from within us, not just come from outside us. And we see this as the story continues. So here's the end of the first narrative. Tamar's brother Absalom gives her cold and calloused comfort. Let's put comfort in air quotes, shall we? He says to her, hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take, you know, that personal, most personal violation to heart. Sure, let's do that right? I'll just remind myself that that's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. How often does our culture want us to play pretend with truth, play pretend with reality? Don't hear what was said. Don't remember what was meant. Don't receive it as it was delivered. Don't take it to heart. Just hold your peace. So this is the advice that comes from her half-brother, I mean, sorry, from her brother, Absalom. In other words, that violation you have received that leaves you, according to the end of this chapter, a desolation, boom! Don't don't let non-peace enter in. Just have peace. All the while, 
his heart is going to calculatingly be consumed by hatred. He tells her to have peace, but he has none inwardly. But then we're told outwardly, in verse 22, Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated him. But his hatred is undercover. He's covering his hatred with peace, or what might be presumed by outsiders to look like peace. But here's part of the problem. As we come to moments like this and we seek to understand a text like this, we must remember that worldly peace and biblical peace are not the same. The world describes the absence of conflict as peace. There's no more fighting. There's no more war. There's no more violence outwardly expressed. But that's not biblical peace. Biblical peace, the peace that God gives, the peace that the men in Scripture are filled with, even as they pen the text itself, is not the absence of conflict because the Bible assumes conflict, right? If you want the absence of conflict, you have to go pre-Genesis 3 and post-Revelation like 20, right? Everything in between deals with inward and outward conflicts, geopolitical, economic. It doesn't matter. It's filled with, on the largest scales of nations and the tiniest scales of the human heart, conflict after conflict after conflict. Another way of saying that, evil begetting evil. Rebellion, beginning, rebellion, hatred, giving birth to hatred. So Absalom's wisdom and comfort given to his sister, just be peaceful about it. Biblical peace is the confidence in the supremacy of God over all things. Biblical peace is confidence, trust, confidence, confide, with faith, trust in the sovereign rule of God over all human affairs, including your circumstances. Your circumstances can't dictate biblical peace, and they can't confront it. How many times do you think that the peace that the Lord gives is fragile? It's not. It might be fleeting to us, but that's not the same thing, is it? Fleeting deals with how we relate to it. Fragile means the substance of it itself is delicate. No, no, no. The folly is ours, not the inadequacy of peace. Biblical peace is confidence in the supremacy of God over all things. But Absalom does not trust God to have vengeance and extract justice from his half-brother. In fact, 
on the outside, does he not look controlled? But inwardly, he's being consumed by this hatred. Sometimes we think that this outward control is the ideal. But only when it's not matched inwardly by that confidence in God's supremacy. Otherwise, it's what we've been called for a couple thousand years. Hypocrites. It's hypocritical if the inside and the outside are not matching. So Absalom waits two years to exact his vengeance. Two years of hatred and seething inwardly. So after those two years have come, the plan is fully hatched. Every I dotted T crossed. It's without question an incredibly brilliant, though thoroughly seditious, plan. So let's check out the plan. Absalom comes to David, verse 24, and tells him, Behold, your servant, speaking of himself, has sheep shearers. Anybody like, whoa. (laughs) Right? Like, whoa, you guys have cattle and sheep? Okay. Well, we have to do this thing where we care for sheep. David's a shepherd. He knows this. But it's how we understand it unfolding. So, so Absalom comes to David, points to the metaphorical and real sheep that aren't present but are there. And he says to them, hey, we got to deal with this sheep shearing thing. Please, can the king and his servants go with me? Now, how exciting is it for the king, who probably has many responsibilities and pleasures to pursue, to go like 15 miles north where all the sheep are hanging out and watch them get haircuts all day, every day for a while. Because you're not talking about like 10 sheep or 30 sheep, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of sheep. Now, I'm sure there's more than one shearer, but nobody has battery-powered clippers. Did you know YouTube videos are available to watch people shear sheep? I'm sad to say I actually like watched for a while because I was like, how does this work? And then like literally 20 minutes into watching these clips, I realized they all have electric clippers. I'm not actually watching what this thing's talking about because they're not using like, I don't know, machetes, knives, razors. Like what do we... Yes, this is not a slow deal. Scissors, shears. Thanks, I got to have Nate with me. He's like, dummy, it's shears. Right. This is why I need y'all. Thank you. And the king's like, nah. (laughs) As exciting as the invitation is to the royal ball of haircuts for animals, So here's David's brilliance. His son is like, hey, can we be together? And David's like, I got to get out of this. How do I get out of this? So he says in verse 25, no, my son. I mean, how tender is that, right? Always deliver brutal no's with tender words. No, my son, let's not all go. (laughs) 
lest we be burdensome to you. How's David doing in politics right now? He's a much better politician now than he was back earlier. I don't want to cost you a lot of money. Because if I come, then the SWAT team has to come, and then their royal guards have to come, and then they all require food and shelter, and let, let's just not do that. There's got to be a beach around here. I don't really want to watch the sheep shearing. So I can't go because it'll cost you money. Notice how David takes the low position in his words, even if not in actuality. In actuality, he's like, no, I don't know. But he's like, oh, because it would burden you. Absalom is excited at David's refusal. This is part of the plan. But he's making all of this unfold in a way that looks like it's David's idea, or at least to those who know, David's permission. This happens with David's presumed blessing. So Absalom's like, oh, it's too bad. I really wish you could come. I'm totally glad you're not coming. And then he says in verse 26, oh, if not, please let, which is another way of saying make, please make, please let. Again, they're just talking flowery politely, but the intent is, can you command Amnon to go with us. And the king says to him, why? It's a legit question. Why should he go with you? And Absalom, we don't even get the answer here. The narrator's moving past the action. But he's saying, Absalom pressed David. Until when? Until he let. There is a stark Reality that again, David's will can be bent by whom? By his sons. We often talk about daughters wrapped around their fingers. Don't look at Savannah. It's not true. It's totally true. <laughs> Sorry, Sid. I mean, um, no, we often talk about daughters wrapped around their dad's pinky finger, right? David's sons bear the same tender desire of a loving father who abdicates his responsibility. That's hard to blame David. This is a well-hatched scheme. And yet, David sees no good reason, but Absalom presses him to the point where David throws up his hands and lets Absalom make his brother Amnon, go with us. Absalom pressed him until he let him go. In fact, the only way it would work is if David didn't have to go, but all his sons did. David's making sure that Amnon is not privileged, irony much, of being the only one to go. So David sends all his sons, because there's nothing parents like more if they can't be with you than having your whole family together, right? It like warms your heart. Oh, it's Thanksgiving and you can't be with us, but like you got together with all of your brothers and sisters. Like that warms a grandparent's heart, yes? A mother or father's heart, yes. So all the kids are going. David doesn't have to. And then we see the, the plan, 
Verse 28, Absalom commands his servants. Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. Amnon had pleaded with David to hatch his plan, right? Hey, David, can you make sure that Tamar, not anyone, just Tamar, comes, makes the cakes, and serves me? Here's the same pleading, but from a different son. Hey, can you make sure the future victim is coming so that my plan can unfold? It's always done kind of up through David to hide themselves. It's my evil, but I'm going to do it under the pretext, the context of going through my father. And as a way of trying to cover my own evil. Doesn't that mean you know it's evil? Isn't that part of the schemes that we hatch? We're trying to get away with non-truth. We're trying to get away with evil, hatred, murder. Because we're being consumed by it, we must find an outlet for it. So wait for happy hour to do its job. And then I'll give you the sign. The sign is very sophisticated. There's a password. Are you ready? Let's be clear about what the sign is. The sign is well-coded. Strike Amnon. You might as well just yell, get him, boys. In fact, when you, when you read the commentaries on this chapter, I have never seen the word henchman in more places in my life. All these servants instantly transformed into henchmen. Because they participate in the scheme that this brother hatches against his brother. So wait for him to let his guard down. Wait for happy hour to work. And then strike Amnon. And in case that's not clear, what's the narrator tell us? Kill him! All of this is a pretext for murder. Pretext for murder. That's it. All of this is smoke and mirror and circumstance so that other people can kill the one whom he hates. So here's Absalom using other people to carry out the murder that he intends. I've seen that pattern before, haven't I? When David uses the sword of his enemies to kill Bathsheba's husband Uriah, we've seen this plot before. We've seen this evil before. And evil begets to kill him. And then we get this speech, and this speech is despicable. The murder is more despicable, but make no mistake, calling evil good does not make evil good. Evil is evil because God says it's evil. 
And good is good because God says it's good, and he's the only one who sees clearly and judges righteously. The rest of us have clouded vision and limited knowledge. He lacks neither. He has neither. Don't fear. Didn't I command you this? Be courageous. Literally means take heart. Yes, take heart and murder. This is not take heart and charge the bunker. This is take heart and murder the defenseless one. When he feels safe and secure in your guard. Pounce. Valiance has nothing to do with cold-blooded murder. Soldiers at times have to be valiant, have honor. I think it was the wisdom of Tolkien who says, sometimes it is best judged by those you have mercy to let live that defines you. Speaking of when and if to kill Gollum. Be courageous, be valiant, the despicable man speaks, who has no courage, has no valiance. Verse 29. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Well, what happens next? You've seen this scene before in many a movie. The gunshot is fired. The guy is assassinated. What happens next? Everybody runs. Everybody hides. Tables get flipped. Doors get flung open. People jump on animals and ride away. Why? Because nobody knows who or how many will be ensnared by this. So they get out on their own. They flee. Right? Yes. That's exactly what they did. All the king's sons and their folks jump on their mules, that's a little funny, and flee. Right? Go best, no. Um, verse 30. When they're on their way, news came to David. Holy cow, news travels quickly? Especially when it's like lust and weakness and murder and, right? Like that's the kind of news that travels super fast. Didn't need the internet to send these information blurbs. So the, the news goes out. Absalom has struck down. And of course, the first reaction, that hot take that we love to click on is almost never correct. You know that, right? That like the thing happened and an hour later you're doing your internet research on it? Yeah, like, like the sheriff running the investigation knows pretty much nothing. I'm confident that your news source on your little website doesn't have all the data yet. In fact, this is one of the hardest things for us living in our culture today. The information that's gathered immediately is not only probably unreliable, it's totally going to fit into a narrative that somebody wants to communicate. The pursuit of truth is replaced by the greed behind 
the pursuit of instant information. More clicks, more advertisers, bigger, more money, more money, more money. Our modern news system is not about truth. It's really about money. We'll do that another day. But it's unreliable, and you can see it right here, verse 30. All the king's sons are dead. Not one of them is left. Any truth here? Yeah, one of them is dead. The rest of them are fine. They're, you know, speeding away on mules. Can't get that thought out of my head. What's your reaction? All your sons are dead. All your sons are dead. (laughs) David does what I would do, what any of us would do. Express tortured grief. He rips his garments and he lays on the ground. He falls prostrate, weak and empty, filled with tears and sorrow. And he lays upon the ground. Do you remember how distraught he was for a week when his son, who he was told ahead of time was going to die, dies? This is all of them. The evil that is hatched has untold ripples of evil and sorrow and grief. So David's freaking out based on the information he has. Verse 32, interesting thing happens. Jonadab, remember this is the guy who's skillful at craftiness. This is the guy who hatches plans that work. He immediately speaks to David. And he tells David, uh, hey, look, don't suppose that they've killed all your sons. Like, they're not all dead. It's Amnon alone that is dead. How does Jonadab have the right info when only the wrong info is being disseminated? I'll leave that thought pregnant in your own minds. But he tells David the truth here, that it is Amnon only who is dead. And this was done by the command of Absalom. That This has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Two-year plan. He made the decision to murder and execute his half-brother two years earlier on the day when it happened. And Jonadab knows. This is what makes him so dangerous in this chapter. Because he knows the evil is coming. Maybe even had a hand in formulating this plan. Laying out all the elements of the pretext of murder. David, don't worry, it's just Absalom. He's killing Amnon. Amnon's dead. This has been determined for years. He was a dead man walking for like two years. So verse 33, here's the comfort. Therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Just in case David, in his grief, crying, wailing, tears, 
hasn't caught on that it's only one son who is brutally murdered within the family on a scheme that's been hatched for two years. Amnon alone is dead. I wish in this moment that the narrator put three little dots. Amnon alone is dead. Dot, dot, dot. But Tamar's not restored. You get me? Is this justice for Tamar? Is this sympathy? Is this compassion, pity poured out towards the actual victim? Does victimizing someone else help your own victimization? In fact, pastoral timeout. One of the worst elements of our culture today, one of the supreme biggest flaws of our culture today is that everyone is a victim. And if everyone is a victim, then no one is a victim. This is the line from Incredibles, right? If nobody is special, if everybody's special, then nobody's special. We're so quick to want to show our own victimization that downplays, ignores actual victims and the trauma that they have. We're playing pretend at victimhood. We're spinning a moment so that we can garner false pity when the real pity, the real compassion belongs to Tamar. Not only are we terrible with truth, we're terrible with how we present or think about truth. This is how pervasive this is in our culture, in our hearts. We like to think that guys like Absalom are rare, don't we? How fascinated is our culture right in this moment with like mass murderers, right? Like how many movies about Dahmer need to come out for us to understand he was evil and he did evil because evil begets evil, yes? Absalom is not unique. He's not rare. We share Absalom's nature. We have the same heart. We have the same will. We have the same malice that can consume us. Ask Cain. How far do we fall from Adam and Eve in the garden? They go from like hiding to in a single generation, murder within the family. In fact, here's fun. Make a list of all the murderers in the Bible. You're going to need a spreadsheet. How much is it? And then once you have the list of all the murderers, then 
put a check mark in the next column over who they murdered, whether it was in their family or outside the family. You'll be staggered. So I know you're sitting here today, and I know hopefully you're mildly entertained and deeply engaged, but you're also going to push back. Your heart, your pride is going to say, Pastor, I can accept the idea that there are elements of that evil in me. But like, that's not the same evil. I, I don't have the same malice. I don't have the same will. I'm not two years patient to exit. I just punch my sister. I don't wait two years to do it. I can't wait through dinner to do it. If you're young enough, I hope young enough. Listen to the Apostle Paul judge you. Listen to God's assessment of your heart, your will, your character, your welcoming malice. Titus chapter 3. Verse three, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. We're talking about you. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's not saying on the off chance this is you. Or pick one and it's you. This is a righteous God's assessment of who you are with his grace and mercy withdrawn from you. Imagine a world where there's no general grace. Imagine a world where all the evil and wickedness that we want to execute, we do. Oh wait, we don't have to imagine it. You can read about it in the book of Judges. Each man did what he thought to be right in his own eyes. That's the chorus of the whole book. It's the bloodiest book I've ever read. If God's common grace was withdrawn, how evil would we be outwardly? Because our outward would then match our inward. It's by God's mercy we're not all murderers. Because we hate one another. We might do it by tribe. We might do it by skin color. How ridiculous is that? Utterly despicable. But hate is closer to you than you would confess. But hate and murder, and the blood of the victims cries out to God. He sees it, and he actually hears it. In that story in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, God actually speaks to Cain after he's murdered his brother, and he says this, 4.10, Genesis 4.10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. We who pretend to be victims... It's not our blood that cries. It's the real victims of real, real, real murder, real assault, the lasting stuff. Because when all is said and done in this story, in this narrative, Tamar is still unrestored. 
Absalom's murder of Amnon does not have the power to restore her. Dot, 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 the end? You with me? Dot, 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 they lived pitifully ever after? Dot, 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 there's no good, there's no beauty, there's no glory coming? No, dot, 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 Jesus comes. Dot, 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 there's a day of restoration. There's a day of vengeance for God. There's a day of justice for everyone. That's what Paul's telling Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. That one day Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. In view of his appearing and his kingdom, Paul charges Timothy, preach the word. Do it in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage. Why? What are we to do with this? Amnon's dead. We're going to see that Absalom runs away. So that family's that already hemorrhaging gets to hemorrhage even more. Absalom flees and he goes far away and he has to stay there for three years, we're told. And yet Amnon's dead and Tamar still tortured. What's the theological witness of this text to us? Let's ask it a different way. Where's Yahweh in this chapter? Does his name get spoken? Do we see him doing and acting? Invisibly, yes. God is fulfilling his word of judgment against the house and dynasty of David. He promised that he would raise up trouble for you from within your own house. Another way of saying that is that God will allow David's house to be as uncontrolled and rebellious as it desires. You'll get what you want. And they will mirror and multiply your evils. And it won't take long. This chapter is brutal in every sense of that word. It is not pleasant, but it is promised. You want to know where Yahweh is in this chapter? He's being true to his word. Can I say that again? He's being true to his word. He said there would be trouble, and boy, there's trouble. But this is our assurance because we know the rest of the story. We know where restoration comes from. We know where hope is fulfilled. We know where faith leads us. It leads us to Christ. It leads us to the covenant keeper who is true to his word. Despite all the brutality and all the judgment and all the evil and all the harm, all the disruptions, all the conniving, the lust, the greed, the murder. Yahweh is true to his word. And that includes promises to you and to me that evil is judged and abolished. No? Evil is judged and abolished. There's a day coming where evil is over, where Jesus Christ will return and judge the living and the dead. I love the way my good friend, Pastor Jeff Mingi says it. He says, take heart, have courage. Evil has an expiration date. 
Yahweh is true to his word. He promised the deliverance and he brings it. Slower than we want, but he brings it. You want to be filled with rage? Be filled with rage at your own sin. Be filled with rage at your own capacity for evil. And all the more, trust the blood of Christ is greater than your sin, than your desires, than your will, than your malice. He is greater. Yahweh is always true to his word. So know his word, believe his word, and lean into his justice and mercy. Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we gather on this day, we confess that we are led astray, that we are disobedient and foolish. Father, too often in too many ways, known and unknown, we are slaves to passions and pleasures that are not good. We pass our days filled with malice and envy, mocking and hatred. God, we pray that you and your loving kindness would save us, that you and your overwhelming mercy would wash us and clean us. But as we conclude this chapter today, we ask to see the restoration of Tamar. Father, we pray that your mercy and compassion all those centuries before was poured out in the day of redemption for her. Lord, we long to embrace her rightly, even as she was dishonored wrongly. Father, we pray that we would hear true victims and hear their blood cry, hear their pain speak in a way that silences our hypocrisy, that denies all of our desire to seek the imitation of justice. Oh God of glory, come and be our assurance. Come and assure us that you are true to your word and that your word is trustworthy because you, oh God, are more to be believed than all others. May we have confidence in the power of the gospel. It's in his name that we ask all these things. Jesus Christ, our redeemer, and all God's people agree.